from the Center for European Reform. This is the CER Podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of the CER Podcast. My name is Sophia Besch. I'm a research fellow here at the Center for European Reform and I am talking to Camino Motera Martinez, also a research fellow for Justice and Home Affairs and the CER's representative in Brussels. We are going to talk about how to plug the UK into European security cooperation after Brexit. And when we talk about security cooperation concretely, what we mean is countries working together to counter terrorism and cross-border crime. And I want to ask Kabino about two organizations or mechanisms that the EU has built for that purpose. Europol first and second law enforcement databases and to ask her specifically how the UK can stay connected to these even after Brexit. So let's start first with Europol. Very straightforward, Camino. Can you explain to us what Europol is and what it does? <laughs> yes, Europol is the European Union's police agency and uh, movies might have to think that they have a very pretty uh, police officers like Catherine Zeta-Jones in uh, Ocean's 12. <laughs> But that is not the case, unfortunately. It doesn't really have operational powers as such, so there are no uh, European Union policemen going around. But um, it basically oversees sorry, international investigations and, and coordinates uh, joint operations uh, between European Union countries and sometimes also um, others, for example, Uh, to counter drug trafficking, smuggling, cyber cyber attacks, and all these sort of things, and um, just just a couple of data um, to show how important the UK presence is for Europol. Um, it's Britain is basically the fourth country with the most uh, stuff. That's weird for the Brits in, a, in an EU agency. That doesn't happen often. And uh, Europol's current director, Rob Renwright, uh, um, is a British national, and he's also a former MI5 um, analyst. And, and the UK has been really at the forefront of Europol uh, over the past uh, 10 years, actually. So, so yeah, I think that the topic of how to plug Britain uh, into Europol when it leaves the European Union is, is a very important one. So the way that you've just laid it out made perfectly clear why the EU would have an interest in the UK staying uh, plugged into Europol and why the UK would have an interest in uh, keeping access to Europol, keeping cooperation close. So why can't the UK just stay in as before after Brexit? Why can't we just leave Europol membership untouched, say that security cooperation is something where the Brits can have their cake and eat it too? Right. Um, there are two things. One is the fact that as any EU organization is only open to EU members. Um, so tweaking that would be a big concession to the Brits. Um, and the other consideration is that obviously there is political interest both in Brussels and in London to stay connected and associated as closely as possible in the field of security. However, not everybody wants to give the Brits Uh, their cake uh, so that they can have it and eat it, uh, as, as you said. Um, least it kind of like 
makes all the countries think, you know, like life is brighter uh, on the other side of the fence. So why don't we all leave the European Union and stay plugged in, into these things that we like? For example, in this case, Europol, or if I want to stay, I don't know, like in Eurojust, which is another EU agency and the sort of things I can without being a EU, uh, a EU member. So um, those two things um, are going to make it complicated for the UK to retain exactly the same status as it has now in Europol. So in order to get over these largely political, if I understand you correctly, restrictions, what could the UK do? What should the UK do? And how should the EU respond in trying to make this work for both sides? There are political considerations, but as I was saying before, the reason why the Europol is only open to European Union members is also is also legal, right? And we like we love our legal uh, things in this town. Uh, we love the treaties. By this town, you mean Brussels, of course. In Brussels, yes. Yeah, sorry, I'm, I'm speaking from Brussels. Even though there is there is interest on both sides, uh, both both of them will need to make concessions. So both the European Union and the UK. The two uh, main concessions from the UK, UK's point of view um, are going to be the ECJ, which is not easy, as we know. The European and, Court of Justice. Uh, the European Court of Justice, yes, sorry. And, um, and retaining uh, data protection laws, European Union data protection laws, which is basically linked to uh, accepting the oversights of, of the ECJ. Obviously, the UK will also have to pay into the EU budget if it wants to keep on being uh, closely associated to Europol. Uh, but that's kind of, I think, in this case, it's going to be a minor issue because I think that both parties accept that if you want to be part of an agency, you kind of need to chip in a little bit um, in, in the functioning of the agency. On the European Union side... Could I just stop you here for a second? And could you elaborate a little bit more on what exactly is the link between the European Court of Justice and Europol? Why does the UK have to accept the ECJ to maintain access to Europol? Mm-hmm. If you look at the agreements that Europol has uh, made with Denmark, actually a couple of months ago, and Denmark, as we know, is a European Union country, but voted a couple of years ago to actually leave Europol. So this agreement, which is what we called an association agreement, so it's basically Europol kind of offering Denmark an associated status to the agency. Um, you will see that in this agreement, it basically says that the ECJ, the European Court of Justice, um, needs to have jurisdiction over the validity and the functioning of the agreements, which means that any disputes over whatever thing Denmark can do uh, in uh, or within Europol uh, should be uh, subject to the jurisdiction of the European Court of Justice. That's one thing. On the other hand, if the UK wants to stay closely associated to Europol, it will, one of the things that it will probably seek is access to the Europol database. In order to do that, it will need to accept uh, to retain European Union um, data protection laws. And that matters for the European Court of Justice because the European Union will insist that the European Court of Justice oversees any sorts of developments in British data protection law if if the UK is going to be involved in getting data from a European Union agency such as Europol. Um, So it's a a kind of a two-side thing, right? So it it will need to accept 
the oversight on the validity of the agreement, but it would also need to accept that the ECJ will mingle with, uh, with its data protection laws because that's what the ECJ has been doing for a long time. And it has been doing it not only with European Union uh, countries, but also with non-European Union countries as the US and Canada can testify. <laughs> Okay, so those are the concessions that the UK might have to make. What about the EU side? The European Union would actually need to give the UK a very special status that doesn't exist at the moment. And uh, many people would tell you, you know, we will not want to give the UK a different position because no other EU country or no other non-EU country has such a special status. But at the same time, no other country has ever left the European Union, so there is a need to find some sort of creative solutions. One of the things that the European Union could offer the UK would be direct access to Europol databases. So I was saying before, Denmark has an agreement uh, with the European Union on this, uh, but it doesn't allow it to have direct access. It doesn't allow Danish police, for example, to search Europol database directly. It needs to go through what they call liaison stuff. So so it can't run a search and, and get the, the results directly. That's something that the UK, because it's honestly a more important partner on security than other EU countries, including Denmark, could seek. But for that, Theresa May's government or whoever is there when this deal is done will actually need to put forward a good faith offer in accepting, as I was saying before, the ECJ and in, in unilaterally saying and declaring that they will retain data protection laws. Okay, let's move on to the second part of our chat and talk about databases. Now, the EU's law enforcement databases are a very powerful tool for the EU in fighting crime and terrorism, even it may not sound like it. Can you explain why, Camino? Well, it may not sound like it because we've had a couple of very bad publicity stunts in, in the last months because of uh, some attacks that have happened in Europe where the databases were not as, as useful as they could have been. But I believe that this is because they are being misused and not because they are not useful in, in themselves. When we talk about law enforcement databases in the EU, we basically, I mean, what comes to, to everybody's mind is the Schengen Information System, right? Which is this database in which you basically input information on wanted or suspected people and, uh, and stolen goods and documents as well. And this helps authorities across the European Union checking people moving across borders and also trying to get information on, on those who might have committed a crime or who are suspected of committing crimes. So these kind of databases are very, very important in a space in which, you know, you don't have any borders and you don't have any controls. And as I was saying also in one of my pieces, it doesn't really matter whether or not you're in Schengen to find uh, these databases useful. And, and a very, very extreme case of this is what happened with the London Bridge attack where actually Italian authorities warned British authorities that one of both was actually a terrorist. And then the information got lost somewhere, but that was not necessarily the fault of the database itself. So these kind of tools are very, very important where we're talking about mobile terrorists, which is basically the majority of them at the moment. Okay, so just to unpack that a little bit, I've learned from you from your research that there are basically, and correct me if I'm wrong, two broad categories of databases that are relevant for us here. There are the non-exclusive, non-Schengen databases, where it will be relatively easy for the UK to negotiate access, and there's the exclusive Schengen database, which you've talked about now before, the Schengen Information System database. And I think for now I want to focus on that one and just 
ask you to talk us through, first of all, how it's possible that the UK, a non-Schengen member, has access to that database, and if that's possible, how it could also be possible that a non-EU member might have access to that database. There are two types of databases in the European Union. One is the Schengen databases, and those databases were established when Schengen was set up. So basically the idea was we abolish borders, we abolish internal borders, but we need some sort of a common security policy in order to protect the citizens inside and also to protect the borders outside. So the, the two main Schengen databases that's, that are important for us here are the Schengen Information System, which is the database I was referring to before, and the Visa Information System, which we are not going to go into detail because it's a bit more complicated. Then we have what we call the non-Schengen databases or half-Schengen databases, which are those databases which are not directly related, if you want, to the need to protect the Schengen area. And those are databases, uh, for example, uh, Eurodac, which is related to asylum, or, for example, the European Criminal Records Information System, in which basically countries share information on criminal records uh, for European Union citizens and also the passenger name records uh, which is a database that we use uh, to check name and other data of, of people flying in between different uh, EU airports. So as you were saying before I think the most important database uh, for Brexit is going to be the Schengen information system. The UK has access to part of it and the reason why it does it's because when we talk about databases in the European Union, each database is established on what we call a legal basis. So it, each database has a, has a purpose, right? The Schengen Information System is a law enforcement database and it's also a database used to protect borders. Because the UK is not in Schengen, it doesn't have access to the parts of the database that is related to protection of borders, migration and all these sort of things. It only has access to the parts of the database that relates to fighting crime and terrorism. But this access was really not easy to negotiate because many member states thought, you know, indeed the UK is not a Schengen country, so why should we grant, him, grant them access to SIS? However, because of the importance, the strategic importance of the UK uh, and the amount of information that they have, at the end it was, it was decided, let's allow them to, to be in the law enforcement part of this database so that they can input information on wanted people, suspected terrorists, for example, or stolen goods like a car. And that strategic importance of the UK, could that help Britain after Brexit to secure access? Would that be enough? It will be an important card, but it will not be enough because once again, we are getting into very muddy waters related to, as I was saying before, legal basis and a lot of like small prints of laws and regulations uh, that's, once again, people in this town are very attached to. <laughs> it's not only a question of whether or not you are an important partner. And this is, I think, exemplified by a, a case that was before the European Court of Justice seven years ago. Uh, the UK wanted to access the visa information system, so the, the database that I was talking about before, which is basically a database where we have information on visa applicants for the Schengen area. And it, it said we want access because we need to know who is applying for visas, who is overstaying and all these sort of things, because this is very important for us to fight crime and terrorism. 
And the ECJ said, yeah, well, but you are not in Schengen, so I'm not going to give you access to it. So even though everybody understands that the UK is a very important partner and that the UK has a lot to say when it comes to fighting crime and terrorism, if the legal basis is not there, the lawyers here are going to say, I'm sorry, but this is not going to happen. And then if you put together the lawyers and some national uh, interest of not allowing the UK to have the same access as Schengen countries, then it, it will make it a bit more complicated for the UK to be fully associated or fully in the Schengen information system as it was before, which is a pity, by the way, because... Uh, the British government spent almost 40 million very recently to build British access to the SIS, which only went live two years ago. Right. So what can the UK do to make this right, to make this investment worthwhile and to maintain access despite of all the legal fine print? What the UK can do is basically pretty much the same that it, it can do for Europol and for other parts of, of this uh, whole just a home affairs uh, and Brexit story. Most important here is data protection standards. And data protection standards, keeping new data protection laws in this area is even more important than for Europe because of the, the sensitivity of the information that is inside this really, really big database and the fact that there is nobody overseeing it, as, as in the case of Europol, if you wish. This is a kind of like a B2B or P2P uh, kind of transfer. So it's a country to country. There is no uh, organization like Europol looking, looking uh, over it. So there, you not only get into the question of what is the UK going to do with the data of European Union citizens that might be, you know, like convicted or suspected of committing a crime, but also who is the UK going to share this information with? Right. And that is very important because of the UK's ties with members of the international intelligence community, such as Canada, New Zealand, Australia, and in this Wi-Fi's alliance, but notably the US, because of the new administration's policies towards how to fight national security threats. It might make European Union countries, and especially the European Parliament, very, very wary on you know, giving access to the UK, for the UK to the Schengen information system. One example being, again, what happened in London some weeks ago when US papers kind of leaked information from the terrorist attacks. And then we can imagine how unhappy a European Union country would be if that happened uh, to them, if the US managed to get information from the UK somehow uh, without having been proved enough. So I think the, the data protection rules are going to be very, very important. And then again, we go back to the question of the ECJ, uh, which once again is going to have a role here because it will need to oversee not only how data protection rules are being used, but also if there is some sort of a associated status, it will also need to, to oversight, oversee sorry, this, uh, this agreement and this status. So when we're talking about security cooperation after Brexit, when we talk about Europol and access to databases, what you've told us is really what we're talking about is data protection and the oversight of the European Court of Justice. Camino Motera Martinez, thank you very much. Thank you. If you enjoy listening to the CER podcast, you can subscribe to us on SoundCloud or iTunes. And while you're there, please leave a rating or a review. It helps other people find us. And you can also let us know what you think on Twitter. Tweet at us at CER underscore EU. Mm -hmm.